Hello, my name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. I hope you enjoy listening to today's discussion. One of the issues we return to in Quillette again and again is the politics of race and diversity, often challenging the prevailing orthodoxy of the identitarian left. I recently talked to two people who thought deeply about the complexities of race and diversity, Eric Kaufman, a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, and Ben Cobley, a journalist. Eric is a Quillette contributor and the author of White Shift, a forthcoming book about the changing racial composition of Europe and America and its impact on white identity. And Ben has just published a book called Tribes, about the capture of a number of key British institutions by social justice warrior liberals, including the civil service, the BBC and the Labour Party. Helen Dale recently reviewed Tribes for Quillette and described it as one of the best analyses of the fraught nature of identity politics she'd ever read. I spoke to Eric and Ben at the offices of The Spectator, where I'm also an associate editor in London. Eric Kaufman, Ben Cobley, welcome to the Quillette podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on as guests. I want to ask you to begin by telling us a little bit about yourselves and about the books. The book, in your case, Ben, that you've just published, and Eric, in your case, that you're about to publish. And we've just reviewed your book, Ben, in Quillette. Helen Dale reviewed it. It's fair to describe that review as an out-and-out -out rave, I'd say. And I'm sure we will be reviewing your book in due course, Eric. And you've got a piece lined up for Quillette, which uh, which may well be published by the time this is broadcast. Um, so, Eric, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your book. Sure. Thanks, Toby. Um, well, I'm a professor of politics at uh, Birkbeck College, University of London. Um, I've, uh, I've got a very cosmopolitan background. I was born in Hong Kong, lived in Tokyo for many years, grew up in Canada, and have been in London for over two decades. Um, and I've, I've had a longstanding interest in questions of national identity, uh, especially as they intersect with demographic shifts in the world. So immigration as intersecting with national identity. And I've written a fair bit on this concept of ethnic majorities or dominant ethnic groups because in the ethnic studies literature, there's been quite naturally a focus on groups that are different, minority ethnic groups, but there's been a lot less focus on majority ethnic groups. Part of this is I did a book in 2004 uh, which looked at the United States and the, the decline of the Anglo-Protestant ethnic majority in the United States as a result of large-scale immigration from Europe and how that changed the politics of America. And I think we're very much in a similar moment in the West to where the U.S. was, say, in the early 20th century. Uh, the book is entitled White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. It comes out October 25th in the UK and late January in the US. Um, and really this is, uh, the term white shift really refers to two things, a kind of external population shift outside the white majorities, which involves immigration and decline in the white proportion of the population of, across Western countries, declining at different speeds and from different levels, depending on each country. Uh, and how, in my, in my estimation, that sort of 
the principal driver of the populist upsurge that we see. But secondly, the second meaning of white shift is a kind of internal transformation, which I talk about uh, of the white majority in, in, in terms of assimilating uh, groups who wish to assimilate into it. Uh, and there's a long history of that, and that continues to this day. So I'm arguing, in a way, down the road, um, white majorities will actually have a more polygenetic composition, so they'll absorb lots of, uh, of other groups through inter voluntary intermarriage. So that's largely the hypothesis of the book. I do deal with this question of the left and its place in this story, because in a way, one of the uh, things that I've, I've come to realize is, is the cultural left, the sort of post-60s new left um, the shift, which I, I think we're going to hear about uh, a, a bit more from Ben, is something that uh, sought to take certain questions off the democratic political agenda. So immigration, obviously, was one of the most important in the sense that that became seen as toxic and, and deviant and beyond the pale for mainstream parties to talk about. It, it opened up space for uh, new political entrepreneurs, and I use the analogy of uh, prohibition of alcohol. Uh, if the mainstream of society isn't providing alcohol, then bootleggers are going to move in to supply that. And that's kind of where we are with the populist right. It's largely uh, about, uh, it's largely an immigration-driven phenomenon, and they're simply moving in. But one of the reasons they're able to move in is because the mainstream parties were hemmed in by uh, this politically correct discourse, which has really an outgrowth of left-wing anti-racism that has sort of indulged in a kind of concept creep beyond the commonly accepted meaning of racism to encompass things like immigration and national identity, which now are enumerated as racism and therefore off the table. So they've had that kind of indirect effect in enabling the rise of the populist right. Okay. Thank you. Um, ben, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and about your book? Yes, so my name is Ben Cobley. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually a journalist by trade, um, primarily in the sort of business to business area. But, um, a few years ago, I, I signed, I kind of, um, took myself out and, uh, took some part time work and got into politics and philosophy and an area that I wanted to explore since, ever since leaving university and hadn't really sort of had the time or the, ability to do. So I started on that. And um, in 2010 as well, I rejoined the Labour Party, which I had been briefly a member of in the in the very early Blair years. But yeah, I, I kind of thought, well, I'm on the left and I'm involved in politics. I, I spend time in pubs moaning about politics and about the left. So, you know, why not join and get involved and get your hands dirty and see what's going on. So I joined Labour and got involved in my local party. Um, and together with my interest in, in writing and, you know, the journalism, I started, I started writing about the left and, and what I found. So around about 2011, I started off and write about immigration and, you know, at that time, which, you know, was a, uh, a very difficult issue for a lot of people on the left to deal with. In fact, you know, you know, as now, you couldn't actually really talk about it except in one way to say it was 100% good. So I, I started exploring that and found in labor and, and, and in the related institutions how, how identity politics was just so strong, so politically powerful. It's almost like the, the uncontested area of labor politics, everything else seemingly was on the table. And then around, uh, Three or four years ago, I just 
the, the idea of a book came to mind and I started writing it. And the idea was, you know, basically to write about how identity politics works and some of the problems with it. But of course, as I did it and explored the ideas and explored my own ideas, um, it developed into something a bit different. And, uh, so the tribe is, is what eventually arose out of it, um, after, after several years of, of hard slog on my own. So yeah, that's just been published. Uh, it was published in July. And yeah, so interesting times at the moment. So uh, the first 30 pages of The Tribe are devoted to describing um, a scandalous episode in Britain's recent history, um, the child sex abuse scandal in Rotherham, um, which uh, you think is a great illustration of your hypothesis. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's, it's, it's an example of what happened in Rotherham of of what I'm calling the system of diversity in action. I mean, the basis of the system is very, is very simple. It's about favoring favored identity groups. And it's a way of relating to the world through, through seeing some identity groups as favored and others as not. It's a very simple way of um, addressing the world in that way. And in, and in the Rotherham case, you found that, um, I mean, obviously it's, it, I mean, I find it very difficult even to talk about. Really, I mean, we're talking about 1400 apparently children who were abused, um, mostly by Pakistani, British Pakistani Muslim men, um, in that town. And it was widely known by the authorities, by the social services, by the police. And yet for years, nothing happened. Or rather, when anyone tried to do anything about it or or even talk about it they were shouted down as racist and the local community leaders a lot of them involved in the labor party some of them councillors um worked to to prevent any investigations into this i mean you have the the tragic episode but also that it's it's a very political event going on in, in terms of identity politics that uh the relation going on there is a, is protection or favoritism towards a favored identity group. Another aspect of it, of course, is in the system of diversity, another favored group is women, of course. So you would think that girls, you know, the girls who are abused would also be favored by the system. But at a local level, you don't have that level of feminist activity. The, the feminists tend to be much more interested in elite level activity you know, like um, the women on boards and in Parliament and, and stuff like that. So there wasn't aspect of, of, of political action going in to protect these children. There were some, you know, noble um, exceptions to that. I think Julie Bindle, for one, she's a, a very well-known feminist. I don't think she was interceding in Rotherham especially, but she was very aware of the issue and had been writing about it and had been shouted down as racist and all the rest of it. But it didn't have the traction there. You know, actually what happened for many years politically was that the abusers prevailed. I think to, to anyone not immersed in the um, culture of the Labour Party, the left in Britain, understanding why it is that a feminist would champion the rights and the interests of Pakistani Muslim men over and above vulnerable white children girls is slightly baffling. I mean, why as a feminist should you be much more wary of falsely accusing or risking falsely accusing members of a minority community of systematic sexual abuse than you would be about the interests of 
white female children. How do, have you, did you actually speak to any feminists who sort of stayed quiet um, or covered up in some sense uh, what was going on in Rotherham? Well, this isn't really the level that that my book was, was, was going down deep into, say, the Rotherham issue. So it was dealing with it much more on a secondary level. So dealing with, uh, you know, official reports that have been produced and, and newspaper articles and all the rest of it. I wasn't digging deep into, into that particular issue. I was doing an overview of the system and using, looking at Rotherham as an example of that. Can I just bring Eric in here? Um, so the perception amongst white working class groups who have traditionally or did vote for left-wing parties, the perception that those parties have been captured by um, identitarians who put the interests of minorities above those of the white working class uh, when it comes to immigration, housing, crime, and so forth. That perception, whether right or not, though it sounds from Ben as though that's pretty accurate, has contributed to the lack of electoral success for various left-wing parties and to the electoral success of right-wing populist movements across Europe. Do you think that the leaders of left-wing parties have made a Machiavellian calculation, have thought to themselves, well, the white population in my country is declining? Um, so, um, uh, uh, as a customer base, I don't want to invest any more in them. I'm going to invest in this growing customer base, and there might be some short-term teething problems, and we might find it difficult to find electoral success in the near future. But in the long term, given the demographic trends which you write about in your book, it's actually in the interests of my party to ally itself with a coalition of different minority groups than with the white working class. And and is that a Machiavellian political calculation that the leaders of left-wing parties, like the SDP, for instance, in Sweden, have made? Uh, or is it just an unforeseen consequence of them sort of uh, uh, becoming gripped by this sort of identitarian fever? Yeah, I think it's very much the latter. So I think that any, you know, Europe, if you take the median voter in Europe, the median voter will be white until the end of the century. Uh, there's no way that, that in Europe that that can be an electoral strategy. Um, However, I, what I think is more likely is that, that the, what I call left modernism, which is this sort of cultural radicalism, which has displaced the old, uh, class-based socialist analysis, that that ideology has simply captured the cadres, the activists in these parties. And so as that permeates, that just sort of takes over and that becomes really what, what's, what's it all about? Well, this is what it's all for. So, so, and I think in addition, you know, there are certainly some of the, I don't want to downplay the calculus entirely. And the U.S. is a case where the Democratic Party has, has invested a lot of hope in that because it's closer. <laughs> Although I don't think it's as close as people think. Um, but Very briefly, I think, you know, sorry, what, yeah. what do you mean by modernism, left modernism? I find that quite an interesting idea. Right. So, so this is really getting into the history of where this call it social justice warrior ideology, uh, comes from, which is it's kind of the utopian socialist anarchist strain uh, that Marx criticized, and it's sort of morphed in many different ways, and it wasn't really delegitimated by Stalin or by the collapse of communism or by fascism. It emerges 
unscathed through World War II and, and is actually becomes a dominant ideology. Um, and what I think, when I use that term modernism, which is, was coined by Daniel Bell, the American sociologist, to, to more or less, he's more or less focusing on anti-traditionalism. This idea of expressive individualism rejecting religious tradition, rejecting national tradition. And that becomes the dominant ethos in the period sort of beginning the 1890s through and that's largely complete by the early 20th century. Um, and I think that ideology, but it was only a small number of Bohemian intellectuals that actually, you know, the Bloomsbury set, the young intellectuals in Greenwich Village, New York. 1960s, that becomes mass with the expansion of the university sector, with the mass media, with the 60s and the hippies and all of that suddenly takes it to a much bigger scale. So I actually think this has been with us for a long time. Now, it's more doctrinaire because they're dominant now, whereas before they were the minority. Once you become dominant, you can then start to institute taboos. We can talk in a minute about why we think the social justice left has become dominant in the last few years. Um, but Ben, listening to that, do you have sympathy with that historical analysis of the emergence of this social justice identitarian uh, ideology, which seems to be all conquering at the moment. Do you think that actually it does have its roots in late 19th century utopian socialism, anarchism and so forth? Or do you think it's of a more recent vintage and uh, is rooted in uh, postmodernism or the identitarian movements in the 1960s? Well, I certainly have a lot of sympathy for what Eric said, and well, not sympathy. I just basically sort of agree, more or less. But it's not my area of expertise, and it's not what I sought to do in the tribe is is do a hist write a history, right. um, say what the roots of this, where has it come from. My aim was to say, here we are now, and this is what's happening right now, and this is how it works. I think it will be a completely different work and a really interesting one. I'd be, I'd love to read or even write. Is where you know trace those mm -hmm. roots and where it came from, but it's not. It's not really my. Do you own. have a theory in the tribe about why we are here now? How we, um, why it is that the the hard left, the regressive left, has effectively captured the soft left and captured left wing parties that until quite recently have been fairly moderate, like the Labour Party. Well, I, I don't think it completely has. Really, I mean, especially if you look around the rest of Europe, I mean, Corbynism is quite um, an anomaly, I think, in a way. I mean, for example, you look in France with Macron, mm -hmm. you know, he's he's basically, as far as I can see, has reinstituted a sort of Blairism, mm -hmm. you know, brought it back, and that's that's had some success, obviously. It seems on the verge um, of happening in the Democratic Party in America, and it looks as though Trump's going to be re-elected in two years. Um, that'll probably provoke a civil war in the Democratic Party, and it could be that the kind of social justice warrior faction is triumphant in that civil war. What happened in the Labour Party could happen in the Democratic Party. I think, I think, yeah, there is that element there, and it in May stroke could happen. But I wouldn't, I really wouldn't underestimate the power of what we might call um, the Blairite left or the soft left, okay. especially in our general institutions. You know, if, if, if we look in the, in the round of society, say across business into universities, obviously, I mean, the far left is stronger in there. Um, but I still think, you know, that, that, that soft left thing, or, or rather the far left hasn't, hasn't mounted a takeover yet at all. 
And I, I, I would find it unlikely that they would win an election. Can I just come in here on this? Because I, I wonder whether there's a distinction to be made between far left, I mean, if one's a radical redistributionist, whereas Blairism, you could argue, was actually reasonably friendly to a certain kind of diversity rhetoric. I mean, a, so I'm not sure whether left-right is the way, best way to think about this. Yes. I mean, you can be sort of social justice-oriented and culturally-oriented, like, you know, Google would be an example of this fusion of that sort of bohemian countercultural ethos with the capitalism. Uh, and that was kind of what Bell talked about in his book in 1976, this fusion of the bohemian and the bourgeois, or, or rise of the bobos, which is the same theme that actually meshes, this kind of ideology really meshes the new left ideology, meshes very well with capitalism. This is, this is, this is actually one theme of my book or an underlying theme is the, that alliance, which is kind of melded. We can see it, especially in the, in the anti-Brexit campaigning that, uh, between, um, economic liberalism, a lot of, you know, big business, um, especially and the politics of diversity and identity. I mean, the politics of identity is crucial to anti-Brexit campaigning. But one of the interesting developments and what distinguishes, I think, the Bobo Mark IIs um, or Bobo 2.0s from the original incarnation is that they seem to be full of racial self-loathing. And amongst elite white groups, it's now become de rigueur to talk about white privilege, acknowledge your own racism and your complicity in a system of structural uh, racism and inequality. How do you account for that recent turn that the uh, left modernist movement has taken? Um, uh, uh, I, I can think of various um, explanations. There was, a, there was a really good piece um, in The Atlantic, uh, which seemed to me to be quite insightful, in which it said that being a, a, a racial self-flagellation for white people um, had become a kind of high-status indicator, a way for high-status whites to differentiate themselves and avoid anyone confusing them with low-status whites, because low-status whites would never engage in racial self-flagellation. So it's a very clear way of signaling to, to other people, not your virtue necessarily, uh, and it's not necessarily a symptom of self-loathing, it's actually a way of advertising to uh, other members of the Brahmin left class, to use Thomas Piketty's term, um, that you are a member of their ranks, you are a high-status white. Right. I think there's a lot to that. And I, I think, you, you know, I, I'm but I also think this, again, I tend to think this has historical roots. So you can go back to the 1920s to, to eat. Well, I think this begins with an essay actually in the Atlantic in 1916 um, by Randolph Bourne, who was a bohemian from Greenwich Village, representative of the youth culture of that time. Modernism was just emerging. Um, and he wrote an essay called Transnational America, where he said, well, what we, what we need is for ethnic minorities to stick to their the Jew to stick to his faith, to maintain themselves. And the wasps, the Anglo-Protestant group majority, should kind of be the cosmopolitans. They should give up there. And part of this was also in the context of the prohibition of alcohol in 1920, which was very much a Protestant, kind of rural and working-class Protestant movement. So there was a whole generation of intellectuals called the Lost Generation that were vehemently anti-Puritan and derided the kind of middle American, rural America, still majority rural, small town country. Um, and that's kind of the, the beginning of your anti-your-own group. 
right? So it's, we want to dissolve our own group because we are in some way. And also, we're less interesting than those African Americans with their jazz and the Greeks with their, you know, so, so it's partly seeing the exotic as wonderful and expressive and the, your culture as repressed and buttoned up. And that kind of influences through the beats as well, where, except it now becomes what happens is when the Catholic whites merge into the Protestant whites, it's no longer about being anti-wasp, but it's now anti, it, it starts to become anti-white. So the squares versus the, you know, I think, I think it was Jack Kerouac who was living amongst the Mexicans and said how great it was. And, and now he's, of course, derided as cultural appropriation, but back then he was very radical. Um, so that kind of sensibility was already there at just on a scale that was so much smaller. When they become dominant, mm -hmm. that's when you get the authoritarian, the kind of taboos and everything. You can't enforce a taboo when you're just a minority. Okay. Uh, could, I, could I, sorry, just break, briefly say yes. something about what Eric, following, following Eric, which was, um, I mean, in, in the tribe, I mean, I write, it's, it's called the liberal left and the system of diversity. And the liberal left I write about as an overseeing class. And one thing that distinguishes it, you know, in, in, in so far as, you know, it's white people you're talking about, especially white men, what distinguishes them from the working class is that they, they oversee, you know, this is, this is their purpose in life. You know, right. they go, they go to events and, you know, they're, they they, they write articles and, <laughs> um, you know, they, they go to, go to the pub and, and discuss what society should be. And I think that's a crucial distinction between what, the, what they do, how they look at the world and themselves in the world and what the working class does, how they're addressing the world and relating to the world, you know, through identity and through favoring favored groups is basically impossible for what white working class people. They are, they're by definition almost not overseeing what goes on in society. And plus, obviously, they are, they are competing with a lot of the groups that um, for housing and for jobs that they're meant, that they're, they're meant to be favoring or they, you know, if they were part of this liberal left tribe. So the liberal left tribe is saying, Hey, you know, we're, we're the good people and, and the way we behave is the way that everyone should behave, you know. So work, working class people don't behave like that. And they, and they go, right, you're bad people. So you're excluded from our system and, and you're outside acceptable society. So it's a kind of a natural distinction there. But you, you, you mentioned Brexit earlier. Um, to what extent do you think that um, the liberal left's uh, detestation of leave voters, particularly white working class leave voters in towns like Rotherham, to what extent do you think that's, that's prompted by snobbery? And when they're talking about just how European they are and just how pro-immigration they are and so forth, it's not just a way of virtue signaling. It's a way of expressing, signaling their identity of this kind of elite metropolitan white group in distinction to the lumpen proletariat who they wouldn't want anyone to confuse them with. Well, I think Brexit has been a, a massive eye opener for all of us. And I think, you know, it's, it's obviously been terrible in the divisions it's created and a lot of the anger and noise that goes around. But it's been fascinating for us, I think, to see what our societies were really like, who we really are. I think these distinctions are so much clearer than than I've ever known or I've ever seen. And I think that's a, that's a very good thing. As for where it comes from, I think, I think really these things combine together, you know, different aspects, you know, ideology, um, obviously campaigning, just a cultural cringe. Um, the fact that, 
middle class people generally are very different to working class people. And that's just the way it is. They tend to have very different cultures and don't have that much in common. So find it difficult to relate to each other. So a lot of these things tend to come together and wrap around each other. I think through political campaigning and, and social media as well, you can see that process happening of trying to come up with messages that kind of fit us and make us feel good about ourselves and how we can relate to different people and uh, and also win, of course, mm-hmm. politically. Um, Eric, there's a there's a there's a I've I've read the piece you've written for Quillette, and you make an interesting point about um, white privilege. You don't dispute that white people currently enjoy some advantages when it comes to um, job seeking, for instance getting employed, um, access to the professions, getting into elite universities like Oxford and Cambridge and so forth. But you don't think that the cause is racial bias, unconscious or otherwise, confined to white people. You think that that bias in favour of whites is also something that other ethnic groups share. So, and if that's true, it suggests that as white populations decline and become minorities in the United States and other European countries, that white privilege won't end. Correct. Um, I mean, the first thing to say about white privilege is I wouldn't suggest that there is a lot of it. It's sector by sector. I think we need to establish it through rigorous measurement. Um, But there certainly are Resume studies that show that people who, for example, have Muslim names are, are, are disadvantaged, and, and that's a, a properly rigorous way of testing discrimination. Um, but my point in the piece is very much that we can't equate white privilege with white oppression. White oppression would suggest society is like a machine with a puppeteer who is controlling things for their advantage. And that's kind of the model that we sometimes get from the social justice left. Whereas there's a lot of work in what's known as complexity theory, which argues that a lot of social phenomena actually emerge through complex interactions amongst people below. And and so this is what I think, if we think about white privilege, for example, there was a study that showed that taxi drivers in Los Angeles discriminate against blacks. Well, you're going to be very hard-pressed to find any white cab drivers in Los Angeles. What's often happening there is, say, Hispanic drivers, perhaps even African-American drivers discriminating against uh, black Americans. You might find in another situation an Asian recruiter discriminating against an African-American or perhaps an African-American border guard discriminating against a Muslim. All of these groups are, you know, up, are, are in their interactions. It's not just white. So all these other groups are, in, are equally upholding this system, which, yes, is slanted in favor, perhaps, of whites. Although, again, we have to establish which sectors this is going on. No study that I'm aware of shows that non-white recruiters or non-white police officers are any less likely to discriminate against minorities. Mm -hmm. So in order for a domination hypothesis to be established, I would have to see a study that shows that white officers are more likely to shoot blacks or more likely to uh, discriminate. And we know from the work that what Roland Fry has done at Harvard that that's not actually true, that white officers are not more likely to shoot black suspects than African-American officers. Right. So so if we then step back and say this is a phenomenon that is caused by all groups in interaction with all groups, even, for example, 
Hispanics choosing to watch TVs with white film leads rather than black film leads. I mean, even a consumer decision like that is part of this complex system that is favoring ultimately whites. The, the long and the short of it is that what this means is, you know, if the white oppression thesis was right, we would expect that the higher the share of whites in a state, in a country, the bigger the white privilege. But actually, if you look at the correlations, there's no correlation at all uh, between, you know, you can have a state that has uh, a very high share of whites, like uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Um, actually, there's a lot of white privilege there. Or you can have a state with very a smaller share of of whites, like Louisiana. Again, there's a lot of white privilege. And then at the other end, you have the same. And okay. so, yeah. Now, the interesting thing about this is that essentially it casts doubt on the almost ubiquitous hypothesis that the main cause of um, white privilege is white oppression. It's the racism and the behavior, the racist behavior of white people, that, that that's what accounts for. That is the driving force. And if, if it turns out that isn't the driving force, and there are other factors at play, if you're on the progressive left, if you put the interests of African Americans above those of other groups, and you really want to do something about, for instance, the racial wage gap, you'd think you would absolutely welcome this analysis. And you say, ah, well, you know, if I want to achieve my objective, which is to reduce that wage gap between blacks and whites, then this is really useful information because I've been focusing on the wrong thing. It isn't to do with um, just white discrimination. It's to do with a more pervasive form of discrimination. But but we know, don't we, that, 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 that this analysis will not be welcomed. Uh, it will actually be aggressively rejected. Um, I mean, w w w why, w it's quite peculiar, isn't it? I mean, Ben, you talk about people on the left prioritizing the interests of minorities above the white working class. But actually, if you challenge their analysis of why minorities aren't faring as well as they might be, and even if you challenge it on empirical grounds with very robust evidence, um, they don't welcome that. They, they think, no, no, it's because white people are racist and it's because white people oppress other races. And that dates back to colonialism, slavery, and so forth. And if you don't get that, then you're in denial or you're probably a racist in your own right. Why is there such resistance to, I mean, if they really are, you know, genuinely motivated by wanting to improve the lot of minorities, why not be a bit more forensic and scientific in going about understanding why it is that minorities aren't faring better? Why just embrace what ultimately are hypotheses which enable them to just talk about themselves and their own problems, you know, endlessly, and not actually about how to help these folks? Well, I, th I think briefly, firstly, is that, I mean, as Eric uh, mentioned, a lot of minorities are doing very, very well. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in this country, Chinese and Indians in particular are doing, you know, on average, on average, of course, we're talking about, um, a lot better than white people on average as well. Um, so it's not universal like that. But going back to the left and why they would completely reject any idea that, you know, racism, um, is, is not a big factor. It's, it, I, I, w I would say it's largely down to the ideological nature of the theory. In that it, you mentioned behavior, uh, and, and reducing to racist behavior from people. And actually it, a lot of the theory is quite abstract 
in that it, it's not really that interested in individual acts of behavior. I mean, it, obviously it will seize on them and seize on them even when they don't exist, of course. Um, but the theory is that racism is everywhere, that society is inherently racist. I mean, the idea of white privilege is, is not, um, an isolated, oh, there's white privilege here, but not there. No, it's, it's the whole of society, except for, I guess you could say, you know, the liberal left itself, um, has white privilege. And that's why you might have, um, a policeman, you know, a Hispanic policeman discriminating against black people or something like that. You would, you would say it's false con- consciousness. And they they've been, uh, indoctrinated into a culture which favors whites over, over non-whites. So that ideological nature of the theory, it kind of never ends it never it can never be contradicted it can't be falsified so you're protected against any criticism um it's a you know you could call it a priori knowledge of of the world so against which any actual empirical knowledge of the world or any experience we might have of say of, of racism not happening is not um representative of the of the real reality if you are going to locate the current moment in this left modernist tradition dating back to the late 19th century. How do you account for a recent shift? Tell me if you accept this characterization. You may not. But but it seems to me um, that a recent shift is that the left used to believe in egalitarianism as a principle that would apply to everyone as individuals. So they wanted everyone to be equal. Now, they seem to care less about egalitarianism in a general, universal sense, and more just about uh, equality of different groups, different tribes. So the important thing is that, on average, black people should be faring as well as white people, but it doesn't matter if within each identity group there is vast and dramatic inequality. Um, uh, and I suppose a shorthand way of saying this is that diversity has trumped equality, that equality of groups has become more important than equality of individuals. Um, what, if it's all part of this, this same continuum, how do you account for that kind of weird shift? Well, you I, reject it? no, I, I think there has been a shift, but I also think we can find antecedents to a lot of what we see. And, you know, again, in that hatred of one's own group, diversity is something that goes back to the young intellectuals, this idea that diversity is expressive and we are repressed. You know, so I think there are a lot of taproots for this. And I still think, I mean, you can look at George Orwell's 1941 essay where he says, you know, there's everyone, uh, virtually all the intellectuals in England are on the left, and then amongst them it's always seen as slightly disgraceful to be an Englishman. You know, So I think these things have earlier roots, but they've just become more strident because groups have become dominant. And of course the other thing is that, that state socialism has failed in a way, so the movement is now over to these identities, but not just any identity groups. There is very much a hierarchy of totemic categories with, say, African Americans on the top, and then perhaps it's women, and then maybe it's gays, or maybe trans are above gays. You know, so there is a kind of a, a hierarchy of the sacred values. And again, this gets back to your your point that once you're talking about sacred values, if racism is now one of these sacred values, it cannot be questioned, it can't be measured, it can't be disproven. And this is one of the frustrations, is that you can never get a proper working definition of racism. I mean, privilege plus power is sometimes trotted out, but any social scientist worth worth their salt could say that that's got a reliability problem, which because it would mean that someone who's very powerful and has no prejudice 
maybe Mark Zuckerberg is is equal on this measure to somebody who's highly prejudiced but is has not much power. It doesn't make any sense. Ben, I imagine you might have a more sinister explanation for the way in which um, diversity has trumped equality. Um, do you see it more as a kind of a conspiracy, conscious or not, between neoliberals and the sort of Blairite diversified diversity left? Because essentially saying, we don't have to share what we've got with everyone. So we don't have to aggressively promote redistributive taxation. We just have to make sure that the current inequality, which we're benefiting from, is characteristic of every group and not just skewed towards white cishet men. So in a way, it's a way of avoiding having to give up too much power themselves. All they need do is make sure, uh, particularly in the future, um, uh, uh, other ethnic groups, other tribes um, get access to the same privileges they have access to. Well, I think there's, there's certainly an element of that, but I wouldn't talk about conspiracies at okay. all. I think <laughs> could be unconscious. Yeah, <laughs> maybe according to this type of theory we're talking about. But I, th I, th I think most politics does happen by accident and it's and it's more about alliances and accommodations you know finding something in common as as we've seen with brexit um rather than philosophical alliances and uh although we could say of course with you know there are you know the diversity ideology does you know doesn't really interfere much with economic liberalism for example but yeah like i say i think it it really comes together by accident for, mo for, for the most part. And, and, and the power aspect is a part of that, of course. Um, for the overseeing tribe, you know, they want to keep their power and, you know, businesses, of course, generate money for the economy and all the rest of it. And, uh, so they're good people to ally with. They're powerful people. And, you know, you know, they, they have a large influence in society. So, so power begets power and, and, and joins each other and they fight in the same sort of cause. But, you know, what once, once th th those causes are gone, you know, they could easily fall apart over something else, I guess. Um, especially, uh, you know, as, as maybe if we, as we were talking earlier, the far left gains more, gains more power and obviously has a lot less in common. Well, so let, let's, let's, um, round this off by just each of you making a prediction. Um, so we've, we've talked. I don't like prediction. Uh, maybe prediction is the wrong word. Prognosis. Um, we, we've, we've talked about, um, the seemingly unstoppable rise of the identitarian social justice warrior left. Do you think that, um, that cult has reached its high watermark? And it can only go downhill and its grip can only be loosened from now on. Or do you think we're just in the nursery slopes of their onward march? Uh, and, uh, in, 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 in a few years time, um, it'll be even worse than it is now. And we'll see even more restrictions on what we can discuss and say, even more persecution of various kinds of people with heterodox opinions, less viewpoint diversity in universities, less tolerance of dissent within tech giants and on the New York Times and so on and so forth. Is it going to get worse or has it peaked? It's a very interesting question. I mean, I think one of the things, see, I, because I see this as a more long-standing trend that goes certainly back to the 60s, what I think is different this time is, okay, yes, it's true that we've seen things like trigger warnings and, and no platforming increasing, but I think that's actually the less important trend than the fact that that is now making it into the right-wing media, and the right-wing media is now 
playing this as part of their politics. You know, that didn't really occur. Uh, if we go back to Afrocentrism in the 1980s, for example, I mean, this was largely a small debate confined to intellectuals. Now it's become a major issue, especially in the United States, more so than, than here. Um, so it's become politicized and you've got people like, you know, Jordan Peterson who are mass phenomenon. Whether that actually changes the institutions themselves, I'm not sure. If you have a very polarized society, they may just dig in, which is, which appears to be what's happening. I mean, you, 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 it's sort of, it feels like the kind of last gasp of the sort of left modernist tradition and that um, it's coincided with kind of almost catastrophic electoral defeat kind of globally uh, for left-wing parties. Um, and you would think that that would prompt a bit of soul-searching and a, and a kind of and a degree of reinvention. I mean, it doesn't appear to be doing anything of the kind at the moment. Why not? I well, mean, <laughs> well, I think we need to differentiate between left-wing parties. Yeah. So, for example, in Denmark, the left-wing party very much has moved to to endorse immigration restriction for example and i would and that trend appears in okay. even macron but it's the intellectual sphere the cultural the yes. high culture that doesn't hasn't changed okay. so that's where i haven't seen the shift yet okay, okay. ben high watermark what? or nursery slopes i mean you know like eric said this is a really interesting question i mean i'm i'm no uh, prophet of of the future but i'd i'd say a few things i i think i'd agree with eric that Politically and electorally, clearly it's not popular, you know, as a general, as a general fact. And the more this sort of stuff is publicized as being what the left is all about, the more the left is in trouble, as I see it, electorally. For example, in this country, we've had a conservative government or conservative led government for eight years. And yet what I call the system of diversity is still expanding in this country. The police are rolling out their, their hate crime units. And, and, and various identity politics. We just added a sixth publicity. category of hate crimes to the, um, hate crime kind of, um, uh, list of sins. Is that, is that the, the Creasy misogyny yeah. thing? Yeah. And I mean, how, how do you define that in order to lock people up? I mean, it's, it's pretty scary. We're looking through the looking glass. And I mean, I, I don't know how, actually how that f will fare, but I, I'm guessing it will have quite a lot of sympathy from in government and in the civil service too. And, and that's the wider point. And, you know, that I, that I talk about a lot in my book is that this sort of politics is now immersed. It's embedded in our institutions, in most of our major institutions, in our universities, in the wider education system, in the media in particular. I mean, Channel 4 is an, quite an extreme example, I think, but also the BBC as well. And they're very much concerned with, with favoring favored groups, as I say, and, and giving, giving representatives of these favored groups as victim groups a, a voice. So promoting, uh, a victimhood of those, of those groups and publicizing it, um, as a, as a habit. And you know, see, you see that a lot more, um, in the media now. So I think my, my instinct is it certainly has some way to go. And I mean, there's a lot of activists, a lot of organizations that are working hard to expand, push this out. And against that, you don't really have very much. I mean, you, you may talk about the tabloid media, um, and, you know, maybe, you know, the spectator perhaps, um, and a few other, uh, publications, but really we're not talking about very much political power here at all. I mean, very quickly, I would say that I think that 
the centrist media actually was fairly favorable to Jordan Peterson. And the other thing I would say is even in universities, for example, a lot of faculty are actually more center-left and liberal-left. So I wouldn't, you know, it's a small group of very vocal people who are in control, but I don't, I think the potential is there to switch, because I think a lot of people actually see them as crazy, but are unwilling to kind of stand up. I think actually just briefly in America, I think, you know, in, in that uh, tradition of America's what, five, ten years ahead of this country, I think I can see there are, there is more um, activity and concerted activity to change things over there. I mean, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Haidt as well. I mean, these are people that are gaining a lot of traction and a lot of attention and are setting up new institutions. Here, we haven't really got that. Okay. And I think you probably had Quillette to that list. But uh, thank you very much. Yes. Thanks, thanks, Eric. Thanks, thanks very, very much. That was really interesting. Cheers. Thanks. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.